1 Samuel here. Um, and, and 1 Samuel is somewhat of a transitional book for us now because it, it follows now in line with that period in Israel's history known as the period of, anybody? It's even got a book name after it. Judges, judges the period of the judges. There you go. This period of the judges that was kind of a very tumultuous time. Remember how Judges was really kind of summarized. It's the very last verse in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, right? Remember that? And so that's kind of how the book of Judges plays out. Just a lot of sin and a continued repetition of uh, of falling prey to sin and then suffering, being brought under bondage, and then crying out to the Lord, the Lord raising up a judge. And so this is what we've been seeing here. And now Samuel comes in as kind of a, a transitional point in Israel's history because now all along God wanted to be, wanted Israel to be that theocracy, a, a nation that was ruled by God. But what we're going to see in Samuel now is that here's the people crying out for a monarchy, that they want to have a king just like all the other nations have. Now, it wasn't wrong, and, and nor I don't think you can say that it was against God's will for there to be a king, because God said in Deuteronomy 17, when they come into the land, that they are to, you know, God's going to raise up a king for them in a sense. But they didn't want God's way. They wanted their way. And so that's what we're going to be seeing in in. 1 Samuel here, we're going to see three main figures in the book of 1 Samuel. First of all, Samuel, Saul, and David. The first Samuel, he's a judge and a prophet, the last judge of Israel, in fact. He's going to be the last of the judges. And really the first of the prophets in Israel is going to be there speaking and ministering, you know, alongside the king there in Israel. The next we see is Saul, who's going to be uh, that first king of Israel, but he's going to be a king after his own heart. The third figure we see key in the book of 1 Samuel is, of course, who? David, right? Who's going to be the next king, but he'll be a king after God's own heart. And so really the book of 1 Samuel centers around these three key figures. That's kind of really even the way that this outline breaks down for us here. So we've got Samuel, Israel's last judge, Saul, Israel's failed king, chapters 8 to 15, and then David, Israel's greatest king that we'll be looking at in chapter 16 to 31, and which we'll be looking at probably next week, as we're only probably going to get through half of this book here today. But you could say with these three people, Samuel was a prophet, Saul a politician, and David a poet. And that really kind of breaks down even their heart. Samuel had a real heart just to, you know, serve the Lord, be a minister of the Lord. Saul was that great politician that wanted just to kind of be pleasing in everybody's eyes and more so in his own eyes. But David, here's a man that's got a soft heart, a gentle heart. His is a heart after God, as we will see. Now, so Samuel comes onto the scene as this bridge builder here, bringing people back to God. Like I say, he's a judge, but he judged spiritually, not just physically. And that was kind of a very different thing here with Samuel because the other judges that God raised up in the book of Judges, these were all kind of like military guys. These were guys that came in and they they dealt with enemies of Israel in a very military way, right? They were strong. But here's Samuel now. He's more of a, a spiritual judge here. He desires to deliver people from disobedience and decay and back to that dependency 
on the Lord. He was a man of holiness, a man of purity, and he's a guy that God's going to use wonderfully in our account here of 1 Samuel. So the book opens up dealing now with how Samuel comes on to the scene, and it gives us a good couple, a couple good comparisons as to the condition of things and what God is really looking for, okay? So we're going to see um, how Samuel comes on the scene. We're going to see the backdrop for what's happening here with Samuel coming onto the scene. And again, it's not very good, but we're seeing this man, Samuel, who's got a heart for the Lord and desire to serve the Lord. So a contrast that we're going to see. So look at chapter one. Our story opens up with a woman, Hannah. She's married to Elkanah, who's also married to Penina. All right. It's got two wives. Now, this is not to say that the Bible promotes or condones polygamy, as some people would love to say, well, the Bible, it's just such a, you know, crazy book, all these people marrying, blah, 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 all these, you know, different people and things like that, and, and people love to try to put down the Bible. But this isn't to say that the Bible is condoning these things, but simply stating honestly that this is what's going on there, and it was a very common practice to see happening in, in this time and, and in this region, especially when you had a woman that was unable to have children, all right? That was really seen as a, as a curse in that day. And we talked a bit about that in, in different studies we've been through recently, but that was a real curse, a real burden if a woman couldn't have children. And so for the man, sometimes what he would do is he would have another wife by which he was able to have children with. And the more children you had, just the more you know, fruitful and kind of wealthy you were to some degree. So Hannah, here's a woman we're gonna find out was unable to have children. And again, that was a very... Difficult thing to endure in that day. And so Elkanah is going to have this other wife here. And so look at verse 2. So Elkanah had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely. That's speaking of Penina. She made her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. So this is... Hannah's state now. But notice what we see her doing a couple verses later. Skip over to verse 10. And she, Hannah, was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Listen, we're going to be seeing a lot in this book about prayer. Here's Hannah now. She's being provoked by Elkanah's other wife, right? And, and this is kind of like an annual thing, it seems, that just you know, she knows what she's going to be expecting and knows what it's going to be like. And maybe Penina is chiding her because she knows Hannah's getting a double portion of the, of the blessing of the gift in a sense, you know, because Hannah, Hannah was loved. And so here's Penina just trying to cut her down every chance she's got. Hannah knows this. And so she's coming to, you know, the temple and just in, in anguish in a sense. But what does she do? In her bitterness, she cries out to the Lord weeping in anguish, looking to the Lord. And this book is gonna be a book that we're gonna see prayer 
becoming very much a theme in the book. It begins with prayer, and we're going to see the book ending with prayer, and we're going to see this prayer being offered up some 30 times in between all through the book of Samuel. We're going to see the importance of looking to the Lord, and it's what God wants his people to do, isn't it? To look to him for what they need in times of distress and in times of even just rest and rejoicing. How we're to be lifting up our voice to the Lord. Looking to him to say, God, I either need you to strengthen me or I just want to come and worship you and give you thanks for all that you are and all that you've done for me. But how we, God just desires us to be in communion with him. And so this book is going to reveal to us this contrast between those who do not seek the Lord and with those who do, all right? So the long story short, God grants Hannah a child. She comes to the Lord. She's, Lord, be my help here. And God grants her a child. The child's name is Samuel. And so she dedicates him to the Lord. It's basically like she's just saying, God, thank you. I know this child is a gift from you, so I want to offer this child back up to you. It says in verse 28, chapter one, therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. And this is not the way that we should be looking at all of our kids that we have as a gift from the Lord and say, God, thank you for my child. And I understand that I am just called to be a steward of what you've given me here. But Lord, I just want to give them over to you. Sometimes we just want to say, I will just lend this child to you freely. You take my child now to somebody else, you know, a neighbor, uh, uh, somebody from church. You take my child home. I'm just lending him to you because I'm, I'm, I need a break. Sometimes we want to do that. But with the Lord, it's just like, Lord, these children are yours. And so I, I, I want to pray for them. I want to dedicate them to you. I want, I want them to grow up knowing you and serving you, God. That's what we should desire and Hannah is doing just that here, saying, Lord, this child is yours. So Hannah then prays and rejoices in the Lord's goodness all the way from chapter two, verse one to 11. This is this, this song of Hannah or this, this prayer of Hannah. And she's just excited and she's rejoicing in the Lord. Look down at chapter two, verse 10. And the second part there, midway down, it says, as she speaks about this child he will, or, or of the Lord, he will give strength to his king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, this is interesting because there's, there's several elements in this prayer of Hannah that's very prophetic. And this verse certainly is one of them. Because here she looks ahead to what God is gonna do, not just through Samuel and then through the king that's gonna come, uh, David. And notice, Israel has not a king at this point. And yet, what is Hannah praying? He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. That word anointed in Hebrew is the word Mashiach, Messiah. She's looking at not just to David, the king that's got a heart after God, but looking to the greater than David, Jesus, that's going to come on the scene that God's going to raise up and do a great work in and through and bring salvation to not just the nation of Israel, but to the whole world. He will exalt the, the horn of his anointed of his Messiah. This is incredible what Hannah is singing out there in verse 10. Well, the rest of chapter two through to chapter seven now really detail this darkness 
spiritually that the nation of Israel was in. And it details the need for a man like Samuel to be raised up and to be a voice now in the midst of this darkness. Look at chapter two, verse 11. Chapter two, verse 11, then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So Elkanah returns back home after celebrating. Samuel stays now, and he's with Eli the priest, and he's gonna be, he's dedicated to the Lord here. Now it says in verse 12, the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Think about that. This is Hophni and Phinehas, the priests who did not know the Lord. That's an oxymoron, I would think, isn't it? They're priests serving in the temple and they did not know the Lord. That's again just revealing this, this dark backdrop of the, the context of the story that's unfolding and opening up for us here with the need for a man like Samuel to come onto the scene, the need for the Lord to bring about a, a, a ruler now into this nation here. So reading on verse 13, and the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, <laughs> giving instruction to the priest, ah, I think they should really do this. Well, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. The men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Interesting here what we see happening. And so people now, they were beginning just to abhor even coming and offering up sacrifices to the temple because of the way that these priests were treating them and taking things for themselves by force if need be. And so again, just the wickedness of Eli's sons and these priests that were serving in this time. Verse 18, but Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. So he got... Phineas and Hophni, wicked. And now you got Samuel being raised up, serving the Lord, ministered before the Lord. Look at verse 22. Jump down to verse 22 now of chapter two. I can't turn my pages. Okay, there we go. Now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. Verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. So there we're seeing this contrast. Phineas and Hophni are not listening to their dad. They're not listening to counsel. They're not wanting to do what's right, not just before other men, but before the Lord. They don't care. But there's Samuel growing up in favor 
not just with the Lord, but also with, with men. Now in chapter three, we see God calling Samuel now and really confirming again this role that Samuel is gonna have. It says in chapter three, verse one, now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. And that's again, a telltale sign of what's happening to say the word of the Lord was rare. And I, I think more so it was rare because nobody had an ear open to the word of the Lord. Nobody was interested in hearing, right? Even the priests now, they're like, they're turning a deaf ear to the instructions of the Lord. Now, three times we're going to hear the Lord calling out to Samuel in this chapter. And every time Samuel thinks it's Eli, because this is kind of new for Samuel now, even. He hears his name being called and Samuel's like, here I am, Eli, what do you need? And Eli's like, wait, what do you... Samuel, what are you doing? Why are you disturbing me? I didn't call you. And Samuel's like, oh, man, I just heard somebody calling. He doesn't know. The third time he comes to Eli, and he's like, Eli's like, I didn't call you. And then suddenly Eli's realizing, oh, okay, I think I know what's going on. Samuel, I think the Lord is, is calling you. When you hear him call you again, then you're to answer, uh, I, I'm here, and I'm ready to do whatever you ask, Lord. That's basically what he's saying. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Verse 9 of chapter 3 is what Eli tells Samuel to say. Speak now, or speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Basically, it's like saying, I'm here, Lord, and I'm ready to do whatever you ask. That's like basically writing a blank check for the Lord right there. It's not just, you know, speak now. It's, Lord, I'm ready to do what you ask. That's a blank check right there. That, that's a, that'd be a, a, a difficult thing for a lot of people to do. A lot of people would be like, Lord, go ahead and tell me what you want me to do and then I'll let you know if I'm gonna do it, right? But to say right out, Lord, go ahead and speak to me and what you say I will do. That's a, a, a pretty big responsibility or, or a, a pretty big commitment to make that a lot of people would say, oh, they would wanna have all the details worked out. They'd wanna know everything that God is requiring of them before they commit, but not so with Samuel. He's ready just to give it his all. But look at what we see happening because of Samuel's faithfulness. Verse 19, so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his, none of his words fall to the ground. So the Lord just began to use Samuel in a mighty way. Isn't that, isn't that great? When we are ready and willing just to commit ourselves to the Lord and say, God, whatever you have, I'm gonna do. You know what? Well, the Lord honors that faithfulness and the Lord is also faithful to us. And he blesses and he uses us and he, and he works in a way where it's just so clearly the Lord at work, where now Samuel is being used to the Lord in a way where everything that he says, nothing is falling to the ground, nothing is failing, nothing's coming up short. Everything is just like purely of the Lord and as the Lord would have it. God is using Samuel greatly here. Now again, chapters four to seven, things are kind of, culminating here with Israel going up against the Philistines now. Now, we're going to read a lot about the Philistines in, in Israel's history, and so it's important to kind of really understand who were the Philistines. Here's what Skip Heidzik says. He says, the Philistines were a group of seafaring trades people from the aging islands. They migrated southwards and tried to go down to Egypt and were kicked out of Egypt and landed down in the southern Mediterranean coast in Israel. For a long time, they settled in five principal cities, and you read a lot about them in the Bible, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, Gaza, and Ekron. We're going to be hearing those names mentioned in, in 1 Samuel here. When you hear those names, we're talking about Philistine country. 
He goes on to say, they are the enemies of Israel until finally David deals with them once and for all. You've probably heard the term Palestine or Palestinian. It comes from the word Philistine. Palestine literally is from the words Ur Philistia or Philistia or meaning land of the Philistines. There are no more Philistines today, but the term Palestine still persists. Why is that? Even 100 years ago in Christian literature, you would say the word Palestine rather than Israel. A lot of our maps in the Bibles say Palestine. That's because, and this is important, in AD 135, a Roman emperor by the name of Hadrian resurrected the word Ur Philistia or Palestine because he wanted the people of Israel, the Jews, to lose their identity. He took over and he changed Jerusalem to an idol-worshiping capital. He didn't want the terms Judea or Israel, so he resurrected the term Palestinian or Palestine after the Philistines. So that's very important when you hear this debate going on about, you know, the Palestinians and, and how, you know, Israel is really occupying the Palestine. No, it's, it's Israel's land. It's land that God has given them. And it's always been that way. The name only got changed because of a Roman emperor that wanted to try to erase Israel's history and thus call it Palestine after their one of their greatest enemies in the Bible, the Philistines. So that's the context here. And so here we see the Philistines. You know, they're, they're making their way through. They're pushing their way through the interior of the land. So Israel is seeing the Philistines now coming. And so they're wanting to kind of deal with them and come against them. Only as Israel goes out against the Philistines, they're soundly defeated. So they're thinking now, well, we need backup. We need help in this battle. Let's, somebody has the idea, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us. We'll kind of hold up this piece of, of furniture in the temple or the tabernacle as this kind of trophy, you know, and this, this kind of idol that we can use in really defeating the Philistines. Their desire was not to seek the Lord, but to use the Lord for their benefit. So they go up against the Philistines again with the Ark of the Covenant, and they're defeated again. Only this time the Ark of the Covenant now is captured and is taken back to Philistine territory. And in that battle, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they die. Eli hears about this, and he falls backwards in his chair, and he breaks his neck, and he dies. And then Eli's daughter-in-law, who is married to Phinehas, well, it says here in verse 21 in chapter 4, jump over to chapter 4, verse 21. Here's what we read. Then she, this is Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, she named the child that she had Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has, had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Again, the ark of the covenant was the place where God said, it's here on the mercy seat that I will meet with you. So they saw the Ark of the Covenant as being kind of the meeting place between man and God. And now the Ark of the Covenant is gone and, and now this woman is realizing, man, the glory's departed. Just like we've seen in, in Ezekiel, when after all the wickedness being done in the temple, the glory departed. But as we finished up the book just on Sunday, we saw how you know, the glory of God did return to the point now 
For all of eternity, that city there is going to be called the Lord is there. So glory came back. But here they're experiencing now God just kind of departing from them. So chapters 5 and 6, we see now God judging the Philistines. All right. They've taken the Ark of the Covenant. They, they're not dealing well with Israel, of course. So God's bringing judgment against them. What, what the Philistines did, and I love this account here in um, in chapter five, that they take the Ark of the Covenant and they take it into the temple of their god, Dagon. And Dagon was like this fish god because again, they're seafaring people, right? And so they're living by the coast and so they make this god like this fish god, Dagon. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant, they set it down beside Dagon. Well, they go to bed the night, they come in the next morning, and there's Dagon falling over, his face to the ground, and it says, before the Ark of the Covenant. I love that. So they come in, people come in, they're like, ah, Dagon's down. Let's stop, oh my goodness, somebody must have bumped him or something, right? I mean, anytime that you got a God that you need to help and pick up off the floor and worry that somebody might bump him, that's not a God that you want to be worshiping. But they, they pick him back up, of course, right? Let's pick him back up, let's dust him off, oh my goodness. And then they go out again and they come back the next day and there's Dagon again, fallen over. Only this time now his head has broken off. The hands have broken off of this God Dagon and, and it's just shattered. And again, God just showing, oh man, you're worshiping worthless idols. I'm the one true God here and God is showing his power over their gods. And so it's just a, a, a very cool account that we see. And then... They're, they got the argument, they're worried, but now this plague breaks out upon them, all right? This plague breaks out, and so they decide, well, we need help, let's send this ark over to uh, the next town here, our neighbors, right? So they send the, the, the ark, it's sitting in Ashdod presently, that's where the temple of Dagon was, it's Ashdod, then they send the ark to Gath, and then Gath, you know, is worried about the plague coming on them, so they send to Ekron. All Philistine countries, they're not, I mean, they're not helping one another here. They're all like, let's send it on to our neighbors down the road there. And so they just keep passing it on. They're not doing any favors for one another here. And they eventually decide to send it back to Israel so that God will leave them alone. They realize enough, like, if we don't take care of this, God's going to come and, and, and do worse to us here. So they send it back to Israel. The ark eventually, in chapter 7, comes to rest in the home of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim, and it'll be there until David brings it into Jerusalem, which will be in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, chapter 8 here, so that's what we've seen unfold in these last few chapters. We're, we're kind of just breezing over them, a little flyby. And so chapter 8 here marks a transition in Israel's history. Samuel has been judging Israel. He's providing help and counsel for the people, but now the people come to Samuel with this request. Look at verse four of chapter eight. Then all the elders of Israel gathered, um, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Now, again, 
like I said, God, God desired this nation to be a, a theocracy, to really seriously allow God to lead them and for them to follow God. And they want to follow what the other nations were doing rather than follow God. And God will give them what they want. Now, again, like I said earlier, it's not so much that, that having a king was outside of God's will because in, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 and 15, God says, when you, you know, come into the land, I will appoint a, a king for you in, in a sense. And, and um, paraphrasing that, and I, I hope I kind of got that right, but the idea is that you wait until I bring a king for you. I'm gonna bring the right guy your way. But they're now at a point where they're saying, we want a king like all the other nations. Not like what God wants for us, but we want what we see happening in the other nations. This is what we want. And that was where they were stepping away from God's will because they were wanting it, this king to fit what they had in mind rather than what God had in mind. God even has Samuel now and he, I mean, I, I love this book. I like, you want a king? Okay, I'll give you a king. But here's what you can expect from this king now, from this king that you want. And God has Samuel begin to lay out all the pitfalls that they're gonna have with this king, that he's gonna you know, tax them heavily. He's gonna be a burden upon them. He's gonna take their, their woman and, and, and use them for different you know, services and things. And basically this king is gonna really be a heavy-handed king. It's not gonna be a blessing for you. God lays out all these things. And they hear it all from Simon, but now they respond in verse, eight, uh, verse 19 of chapter 8, verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Simon. They said, no, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they desired. You get the idea that these Guys, we're really strong-headed now here. They're just like, we don't care what you're saying, Samuel. We don't care what God's way is. We want what we want. And, and, and that is a very, I think, tempting thing for a lot of us to see maybe the things that the world is doing, how the world is operating, what's happening. Looks like they're doing things really well. Looks like they're really being, and, and we can be very tempted to follow along with what's going on rather than saying, God, what do you desire for us? What do you have for us? Because we have to understand that God's way is always gonna be the way of most blessing for us. The best thing for us. God's not withholding the best from us. He says, if you follow my way, that's the way that you're gonna have the best. But so often we are quick to kind of jump over what God wants to gravitate to what we're seeing working out there in the world or through other systems, other means, other people and think that's what's really going to ensure blessing or success or happiness. When all along, it simply comes in just saying, God, what's your will for me? What do you have for us? That's what I wanna follow and obey. Well, these people are not doing that at all. Chapters nine and 10, we see now Saul being chosen as king. And, and Saul now, he comes on the scene, he's a standout guy. I mean, he is head and shoulders above everybody else. Not just, you know, in giftings and ability, but in stature. He's literally, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else here. He's the perfect fit physically, and he starts out well. He's a humble guy. 
He starts out well. That's the, that's the crazy thing in this story. Look at chapter 9, verse 21. As they're beginning to look at and Samuel's beginning to let Saul know that, hey, we got plans for you. Saul answered in verse 21 of chapter 9 and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Am my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Why are you calling me into this role? He's humble. He's thinking, I, I don't fit. I don't, I'm not the guy. I'm just come from a very small tribe. My family's the least of that, of that tribe. Why, why, are you, why are you picking me? Now, when they're ready to crown him king, now they had this, this big, you know, coronation kind of service. They, they present the tribes. This is the formality of it now. And then Benjamin is chosen. And then the family of Matri is chosen out of the tribe of Benjamin. And then Saul, the son of Kish, is chosen to be the king. And the, the nation's all there, but they're going, wait, where's Saul? Where is he? Saul's the guy, where is he? And there he is over hiding in the equipment. He's like, you're not even a part of this. He's like hearing his name and he's like ducking down behind the box. He's like, I don't want this. I'm not the guy. <coughs> I'm not gonna work in this. And he's hiding out. Saul had a real sense of inadequacy. You know, it's too bad he didn't maintain that. Because I think that's really what we all need to have. A sense of inadequacy. A sense of, I can't do this. Why? Because then it causes us to rely on the Lord. And that's what he wants. He doesn't want us. He doesn't raise up the, the able, the strongest. He raises up the, the weak, the foolish of the world. Why? So that everybody will know, well, they're not doing that in themselves. They gotta be doing that through someone else. And that's the Lord. He gets the glory from that. And it keeps us in a place where we're dependent on the Lord rather than on ourselves. So Saul started well. And it would have been a real key in his life if he maintained that sense of inadequacy and understanding that he needed the Lord. Because it's God's strength that's made perfect in our weakness, as 2 Corinthians 13, 9 says. Well, chapter 11 to 12 now. Reveal this man, Saul, who is doing what the nation wanted to do militarily. He's, he's leading them in a battle. He's, he's gaining victories. He's securing victory over the Ammonites who threatened Israel in chapter, um, chapter 11. And, and so chapter 11 is really kind of Saul's finest hour, right? Ammonites are threatening Israel. They're ready to make a deal with them if they'll take out their right eye. Take out your right eye and we'll have peace with you. And it was like, well, no, we can't. I can do that. Well, Saul leads them in a battle and they get a great victory, but things change quickly because now Saul becomes a man who's beginning to exercise pride, arrogance, and disobedience sets in. Jump over to chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. It says there, Saul reigned one year, and when he'd reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. 
Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. So do you you catch that there? Jonathan, it says, attacked the Philistine garrison. But then Saul blew the trumpet, which is really a signal, a sign of, hey, we secured victory or more so, I've just secured a victory. He was claiming the credit for this. And that's what people are hearing. Verse four, they heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines. Now, as the Philistines regrouped and began to mount another attack, people in Israel began to fear and flee. They're starting to think, oh, the Philistines are really angry now. They're ticked off. Oh man, they're, they're, they're thinking, you know, some are crossing over the Jordan River, getting out, out east now. They're trying to think, we got to, we got to get away here. We got to get into hiding. Well, Saul was getting worried about losing his people. So he decides to make an offering to the Lord. Only here's the thing. Samuel had told them earlier in chapter 10, verse eight, that he was to go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel to come. Wait seven days and then Samuel was gonna come and offer up sacrifices. Well, it's the seventh day and Saul's looking around going, where's Samuel? He's not here. People are leaving. Well, you know what? I'm just gonna offer up a sacrifice. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring an offering now and I'm gonna do what I can to really secure the trust in the people here and, and have them stick around and stay. Saul got impatient and he moves ahead with doing this on the seventh day. And just as he does, Samuel arrives. Look at chapter 13, verse 11. Samuel's imp- or sorry, Saul's impatient. Samuel's not coming. He offers up an offering, but just as he does, Samuel comes. Like he said, he would. And in verse 11 of chapter 13, Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I, or sorry, Saul said, when, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. This here is the beginning of the end for Saul. Word now comes, says, Saul, we could have done great things. Your kingdom could have continued on forever, but, but because you've disobeyed, because you've acted foolishly, Samuel says, because you were impatient and, and took on more for yourself than you should have, The kingdom is going to be stripped from you, given to one, a man after God's own heart. And we know who that's speaking of. Well, we continue to see these bad decisions and failings of Saul mounting. Chapter 14, Saul, now he makes a a rash vow in an effort to motivate his troops to keep fighting until the victory is secured. He tells everyone that the person that eats anything that day, right, before before Saul is avenged, that person is going to be cursed. All right? 
Don't need any, he's got his troops with him. Don't need anything the rest of the day until the evening. Basically, he's thinking, we're gonna just continue on and we're gonna give every moment now to just pursuing the enemy and fighting here. Now, when he made this vow, Jonathan, his son, wasn't there. Where's Jonathan? Well, earlier in chapter 14, Jonathan himself, he's sitting around. He's getting a little restless. He's like, I'm, 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 I'm done with this sitting around. I wanna get some action in. And so Jonathan now, he says in verse one of chapter 14, look, it, it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. He's like, let's get busy here. And I love this account. It's one man with his armor bearer who's ready to go up against a number of Philistines on their own. Move over to verse six of chapter 14. Verse six. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. Now I love this account because look at Jonathan's faith here. He says, hey, armor bearer, let's go over to the garrison, uncircumcised. And what does he say there in verse six? It may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be. Here's Jonathan. He just wants to get out there and get active and say, I wanna give opportunity for the Lord to work. I wanna give opportunity for the Lord to do great things. Do you know how often I think we can be stalled because we're, we're trying to figure it all out. How's this gonna work? What's God going to do in this situation? Uh, should I do it this way? Should I do that? And we get so stalled instead of sometimes just stepping on our faith and saying, let's see what the Lord will do here. Let's give the Lord opportunity. See, God can only steer a parked car or a, a, a moving car. He can't steer a parked car. When we're, when we're in park, there's not a lot God can do. But when we're on the go, God can begin to lead and use us and do a work in us. And so often we're too worried about all the peripherals, all the details. So Jonathan says, you know what? Let's go for it. Because it may be. It may be that the Lord's gonna do something now as armor bearer. If I was the armor bearer, I would have probably been sitting there saying, yeah, it may also be, Jonathan, that the Philistines are gonna capture us, torture us, and kill us with a very, very slow death. How's that for an alternate ending, Jonathan? Have you considered that it may be that way, right? That would have been probably my thought. But here the armor bearer is like, let's do it. Let's go for it. And Jonathan is ready to move forward. I'm sure Jonathan had thought through the alternatives, the options. He wasn't assured of anything at this point, but he'd rather step out and give an opportunity for God to do something. And we need to remind ourselves of what, of apostles in Romans 8, 31, that if God is for us, who can be against us? That was kind of, I think, Jonathan's motto before Paul ever wrote it. If God's for us, who can be against us? Goes on to say, 
Oh, I love, sorry, let me just back up there because I love what Jonathan says. And it is basically Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few at the end of verse six. John, that was Jonathan's faith. Nothing is gonna stop the Lord from doing his work with many or with few. One plus the Lord is always the majority, no matter what you're up against. And so Jonathan is proving just that. And I love, look at verse 13. Moving on to verse 13 of chapter 14. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they fell, the, the Philistine garrison, they fell before Jonathan as, as he came after him. His armor bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And notice how Jonathan climbs up. He's on his hands and knees. Now let's not to overly spiritualize this, but that's a, a big difference between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan went up humbly, hands and knees, trusting in the Lord. Kind of that posture of, Prayer, intercession. Saul is turning into an arrogant and proud man. Real difference between these two. You know, with the Lord, the way up is down, and the way down is up. This is what will be seen in contrast between even David and Saul as well. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So Jonathan gets a great victory. He, he returns back now, and on his way back, he sees some honey there and he dips the end of his, his um, spear or whatever it was into that honey and he takes some, he refreshes himself and he just is like, mm, he's a new man. Somebody now with him sees this and he's like, Jonathan, what are you doing? Your dad has forbidden us from eating anything. And Jonathan's like, why would he do such a thing? That's ridiculous. You've seen me. And he's like, you just saw how I just was refreshed, Right? It's like, the, you know, those Snickers commercials, right? You got, you know, some guy just growly. They're angry. They bite in the Snickers and suddenly there's like a new person. That's Jonathan here, right? He's like, I've just been refreshed. I've just been like, oh, I'm a new man. Why wouldn't, why would, why would my father withhold that nourishment refreshment from you? That's not gonna help at all. Now, when Saul hears about this, He's ready to fulfill his vow and even have his own son, Jonathan, killed. Even though Jonathan has been the hero of this day. Look at verse 45 of chapter 14. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not as the Lord lives. Not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. So the people stepped in. Saul kind of relented from this. But he was willing to take out his own son over a foolish matter. This man became just so full of uh, 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 pride and arrogance that he was just going to do whatever it took here. In chapter 15, we really see now the straw that broke the camel's back proverbially here with Saul. Yet he's, in a sense, being given a second chance to carry out God's word and to do what was right. Look at chapter 15, verse one. Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So God says, and, and he says to Samuel, I've anointed you king. So I, I, I've appointed this position. So listen, would you just heed and obey the voice of the Lord here? It's almost like he's, it's almost like he's giving him a second chance, but the word goes forth. I want you to take out the Amalekites. Now, why was God wanting to punish the Amalekites in this way? Well, it was because of the ruthless attack upon Israel. Exodus chapter 17 records it, Deuteronomy 25. They came against them in a very ruthless way from the, 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 back, uh, the back way against them in ambush. So God wanted a total annihilation of the Amalekites. Some people have a real hard time with that. How could God ever choose to kind of wipe out a whole people group? How could a loving God do that? Well, first of all, we cannot attempt to explain the actions of an infinite God whose ways we know are so much higher than our ways and our, his thoughts, not our thoughts. And what people fail to see is that God had already given them hundreds and hundreds of years to repent and return to the Lord. He'd given them opportunity to get right with them, to repent, but they never did. And God has perfect knowledge and insight into these things. We certainly cannot question it. These were a wicked and depraved people who not only were infecting themselves in a greater fall into sin, but were also infecting others. And it's like what we know to do when there's something that is harming us or hurting us that we want to cut that off. We want to cut it away. We don't want it to linger. We don't say, well, I just don't want to act this strongly. If you've got a, a, a rabid dog in the home, you're not going to say, well, he's been a pet for like, you know, five years. And well, I just, mm. no, you got children there. You, you got a rabid, you're like, we got to deal with that dog. It, wouldn't, it would be unloving among, and to others if he didn't. That's kind of how, how God is having to deal with these people, just as he did with the, the Canaanites when Israel was coming into the land. There came a time where this would be a better work to have them removed. So Saul's the guy that's appointed to do this. But as he goes out against the Amalekites, and I'm sure you know the story, he deliberately spares their king, Agag, and he keeps the best of the sheep, oxen, and lambs, and all that was good. Verse 9 of chapter, uh, of chapter 15 records that. But Saul, look at verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they kept all the best things. And so, in verse 10, here comes Samuel once again. Or, God coming to speak to Samuel. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul... It was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself. Did you see that? Saul sets up a monument for himself. 
And he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, the Lord. I performed the commandment of the Lord. I mean, this guy's delusional now, right? He's like, hey, Samuel, so good to see you. What brings you this way? I just done everything the Lord told me to do. Let's have a little party. Let's celebrate this. But then look at it in verse 14. But Samuel said, uh, Saul, what then is that bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? You know, there's, there's Saul, like, hey, Samuel, good to see you. I've done, I've killed everything. And I was like, out in the background, right? Saul's like, oh, goodness gracious, be quiet. Keep those things quiet. Ruining my cover. And the cow's like, you know, and, and there's Samuel. Uh, what is this that I hear there, Saul? Doesn't sound like you carried out the word of the Lord here. And then here's how Saul responds in verse 15. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Notice what's happening here. Saul is passing the buck, right? He's not taking responsibility here. Look at verse 15 again. He says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. The people spared the best of the sheep. But then he says at the end, but we have already destroyed. He brings himself into the, oh, no, we've, we've killed all, everything else there, basically, but they decided to keep the best. He's just passing the buck. He's, he's trying to shift the responsibility on others rather than humbly owning up to his own fault on this. And we also see that Saul is now referring to God as Samuel's God. He says it at the end of verse 15, that, that we've kept some of the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. It's not our God. It's not Saul's God. Here we're, we're seeing this kind of spiritual decline happening in Saul's life that's only gonna get worse. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. Basically, Samuel's saying, listen, enough of your excuses, Saul. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing right through this. By the way, the Lord and I had a conversation last night, so he's let me in on everything, all right? You're not getting by on anything now, okay? Just stop your excuses. And Samuel says, I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. Saul's like, oh boy, I'm in trouble now. Speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Just a, a slight contradiction there, right? I've brought back Agag and I have utterly killed the Amalekites. Well, no, you haven't if you brought back the king. He's like, again, just delusional. He's not, he knows he's not making sense here. Verse 21, but the people... So those people again, 
The people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice, here it is again, to the Lord your God in Gilgal. The people brought them back so that they could sacrifice to your God, Samuel. Saul thinks that he can excuse his disobedience by giving it to the Lord now. He's like trying to think, well, listen, we only kept them so that now we could use them to better come and worship the Lord with. He's trying to excuse it. But no matter how sincere we may be, the ends don't justify the means. And God is gonna make a great declaration here through Samuel that is gonna be very instrumental even throughout time. Look at what we read next in verse 22. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does the Lord take more pleasure in your sacrifices and offerings than he does in just simply obeying him? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, to listen, to obey than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Understand, this is the very key verse here now in the Bible because it sets up for us what God is really after and it's simply obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. He wants the life that is being lived for him out of a true and pure heart. A true and pure heart that manifests itself in listening and obeying. That's what God desires from us. So often people can get the idea that as long as I'm doing stuff, I'm doing religious things, then God has to accept me. Many people will go to church simply to appease God rather than to worship God. And they'll think, as long as I attend church or I say a prayer like once a month, then I'll get my kind of religious quota in and and everything will be fine. And they're doing these things out of religious ritual rather than a heart of worship and obedience to the Lord. Listen, God's not interested in your payment. He wants your heart. And that's what it becomes for a lot of people. I'll just make my payment. I'll just put in my deposit here so that I can secure that you know, eternal life that I hear about. I'll just put in my deposit. I'll go to church. I'll do this. I'll, I'll follow that and and everything should work itself out. But their hearts are far from the Lord. Isn't that what Jesus had to say to the religious leaders? You honor the Lord with your lips, but your heart is far from him. And that's what Jesus had to contend with in his ministry. It wasn't sinners that Jesus had to contend with. It was the religious establishment that had drifted so far from God, they had it all looking right in their eyes. We've got this great show that we're really close to God, but Jesus nailed them on it. Your hearts are far from him. You're not walking in obedience. You're doing everything for yourself out of pride to be praised by men rather than you praising God. And Jesus had to call them out on it because they were basically doing the same thing that Saul was doing. 
thinking we can just appease God by what we're doing. And Samuel says, listen, to obey is better than sacrifice. How we need to put that into practice. Why do you do the things that you do? Is it because you think you're putting that kind of deposit into your account that, well, God can't now reject you. God can't ignore you. Or are you doing it simply because of your love for the Lord, because you have a heart that desires to honor and worship and obey God? Because that's what he desires. And so because of Saul's disobedience, rebellion and rejection of the word of the Lord, here's what happens now. God declares that he is now being rejected from being king. And notice this, just as Saul sees the severity of the situation, he finally is ready to confess, all right? Just like a child, when you are saying, you better not do that, you better not, and they're just like, I'm just gonna keep doing this. And then the minute you get up and you're ready to take action, you're like, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They just quickly, they're like, oh, now he really means business. Well, that's kind of what Saul's doing. And notice here in verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So Saul the whole time is like going, they did it. They're the ones. And now he hears the words, and so the Lord has rejected you from being king. And then Saul's like, oh, okay. Now we really be business. It's on me. I've sinned. I've transgressed the word of the Lord. It's me. I'm the problem here. But again, he's still trying to make an excuse for it. He says, I did it because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. But here's what would have helped Saul is to fear the Lord rather than fear the people. And anytime that we've got a fear of people or a fear of how they might respond and react or treat us rather than having a fear of the Lord, which is not afraid, but an honor of the Lord, we're, we're gonna be in trouble. It's a fear of the Lord that always needs to, to rule out, to win out, to, to lead us on in what we're doing, to honor the Lord. And Saul would, Saul rather had a fear of the people. Verse 25, now therefore, Please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So in verse 28 here, Samuel sees a great opportunity of an illustrated sermon here. So Samuel said, and the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Oh, that would have stung right there, right? Oh, could you imagine Saul, this man full of pride. Now he hears, God's gonna give the kingdom to somebody that's better than you. No, 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 no. Like that would have really hit between the eyes there for a man like Saul. And also in verse 29, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned yet, Honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Here's Saul now really grasping at straws, but it seems he's more interested in saving face before the elders and people of Israel. That's all he's really, this is really kind of what he's concerned about. Okay, I've sinned, Samuel, I get it, but, but please honor me now 
before the elders of my people. Honor who? Honor me. He's not, he's not desiring the Lord to be honored. Saul's all about himself. Even in the midst of trying to confess his wrong, he's still saying, but can we please just lift me up a little bit here? Just, can I just save face a little bit here? There's no repentance. Pride is gripped him where he's more concerned with his image than he is with how God thinks of him. Now, all this comes about, unravels, because Saul's not willing to take out the Amalekites. God's word is clear, utterly destroy all the Amalekites. Even their livestock, everything. And Saul doesn't do it. Now, the Amalekites become, in the Bible, a, a picture of the flesh. A picture of the flesh that if we don't deal rightly and fully with these things, they're going to come back and hurt us. If we are not cutting off the things of the flesh, we're giving room for the things of the flesh, it's going to come back to hurt us. And such was the case with the Amalekites here. Because we will see later in scripture a remnant of Amalekites that posed problems. David had a fight against them. Haman, uh, Haman in the story of Esther, who was wanting to annihilate all the Jews, was a descendant of the Amalekites. Saul, Saul will eventually be killed by an Amalekite. That becomes a picture for us here. That if we're not cutting off the flesh, well, that's going to have room to come back and hurt us and destroy us. Romans 6, 11 and 12 says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You need to crucify the flesh. You need to put to death those things. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you leave room for the flesh to have its way or to grow. It will come back to hurt you, to destroy. That's the purpose of the enemy here. How we need to follow God's word. And when he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut it off. We better take that seriously. Because God's not just arbitrarily throwing things out there to see if we're gonna respond. Saying, I say these things for your good, for your help, for your benefit. And obedience is what's going to see that come into play. Well, this book here is certainly one of influence. Three people that greatly influenced Israel. Two we've seen tonight, Samuel and Saul. The third one we'll see next week, David. The question is for us, 
Who do we allow to have influence in our lives? And what kind of influence are we to others? Most importantly, God's the one that wants to have the greatest influence in our lives. Does he? Is he the one that's truly having the greatest influence in our lives? See, to the extent that you are influenced by God, then you will be able to influence others for his glory. So may we be those that are yielding, surrendering, obeying what God has for us that we might live to his glory. May he have the greatest influence in our lives so that we can better influence others for his praise and glory. All right? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come before you here and we just want to come and lay our lives down before you. God, these are great lessons that we learn as we go through these Old Testament books and the lessons we learn from the nation of Israel and their history and their ups and downs and individuals like Samuel and Saul here. And I pray that these would not just be stories that we look at and think are neat and interesting, but may we see the application they are for us, the, the, the spiritual kind of connotation for us to see how these are principles that we need to put to practice as well. And God, we thank you that you are a good God, a gracious God. You're a God that wants to Help us, be with us, strengthen us, and bless us. And that path to blessing comes out of obedience. And so may we be those that are following you, taking heed according to your word. And help us, Lord, to allow you just to be the greatest influence and strength in our lives. And that we, in turn, would... Live that out, demonstrate that to those around us. So help us in that, strengthen us. Be with us this coming week here now and all that we do. May we live for your praise and your glory. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.